You're listening to Your Best Life, powered by Mercy One. Join us as we have a fun conversation with certified experts and physicians about health topics for you and your family. It's Your Best Life, our one purpose. Hey guys, this is Sherry Purdy. And this is Miriam Lake. And you're listening to Your Best Life, powered by Mercy One. So glad to have you today. So today we're going to talk about child neurology, child autism, or anything that has to do with when to know to actually bring your child to see a child neurologist. Because there's a lot of things that, um, as, a, as a mother or father, that, you know, you may see some signs that don't seem normal with a child. And a child neurologist is a great place to start to figure out what's going on with them and how you can help um, get them back on the path to just, you know, having a normal life. And some some parents may notice that maybe their child isn't meeting all their uh, markers as they grow older. Um, their, their friend's child is doing this, but their child is not. Is it something to be concerned about? So um, hopefully this uh, next segment will give you guys some peace of mind or some insight on what needs to be done. Definitely. I think it will. So with that, Miriam, we're going to send it over to Tessa in North Iowa. Hi guys, today we are in Mason City with Dr. Call, a pediatric neurologist with Mercy One North Iowa Medical Center. Today we're going to explore the topic of child neurology, what it is, when to take your child to see a neurologist, and much more. Doctor, can you kick us off with a general explanation on what neurology is? Hi, thank you for having me on this podcast. I'm very excited to share about what child neurology overall is. Uh, Neurology basically is study of the nervous system. And then when we talk about uh, the speciality of neurology, it deals with the medical diagnosis and treatment of conditions associated with the nervous system, which is particularly the brain, the nerves, and the connection between the nerves and the brain and the body. And whenever there is a condition or a disease affecting any of these, uh, you see a neurologist. Very good. And can you talk a little bit about what you do every day as a child neurologist? That is a great question. Uh, A child neurologist is a specialist who's trained particularly to deal with neurological conditions that are seen in children. A child neurologist undergoes about five years of training after medical school. The training consists of two-year training in pediatrics. We undergo about some total one-year training in neurology and have a two-year focus of our training in pediatric neurology. So we get to see neurological conditions that are particularly more common or associated with uh, children. What are some common disorders you see in your clinic? Most often uh, in my clinic or overall in a pediatric neurologist uh, clinic, things you're going to be seeing are ranging from headaches, seizures or epilepsy, developmental delay, neuromuscular problems or muscle weakness. And then uh, we also see a lot of uh, patients with concerns about learning disorders, uh, autism spectrum disorder, and then there are some genetic conditions that can present with neurological issues, which are something which a pediatric neurologist uh, see commonly in their clinics. And just out of curiosity, why would a child be seen by a pediatric neurologist versus a family provider for these medical problems? 
Any patient who has uh, concerns for a neurological problem, recurrent headaches, any kind of developmental issues or developmental delays, uh, any concerns for speech or language delay, or uh, anything that a family thinks is out of the realm or norm of expected neurodevelopment and concerns the family, it's reasonable for the family to talk with their family physicians or primary care provider to see if a referral with a pediatric neurologist is warranted. I also always like to tell families that if you're concerned at any point, you may wish to choose a choose to see a pediatric neurologist on your own. So parental concerns are absolutely valid reasons to see a pediatric neurologist. And is there a certain age group of patients you see more frequently than others, or is it all over the board 18 and younger? So generally, anybody who's 18 and below can be seen in a pediatric neurologist clinic. However, as uh, the science advances and uh, the field of neurology is expanding, more and more uh, focus or emphasis on early transition is being uh, brought out. But any patient who's uh, less than 18 years is seen in our clinics. So doctor, you mentioned headaches in children. I get headaches all the time as an adult. Can you kind of talk about the um, headaches that children, children get that come to see you? That's something I very, very commonly see in uh, my clinic. And I think it's a misnomer where people think that headaches are only seen in adults. Actually, about 20% or 10.3 million kids of the age group between 5 to 17 years are prone to headache. And amongst these 10.3 million, about 15% experience what we call as tension type of headaches. And then there's about 5% of the patient population who may have migraines. What I wanted to emphasize on is that of all these patients, it's only about less than 5% of the headaches that we classify as serious disease or organic problems. So if you have a headache, that does not by default mean that you have a serious or a bad neurological condition. But if that's a chronic condition or you've been having frequent headaches, seeing a pediatric neurologist might not be an unreasonable approach. And how do you treat children who have these headaches? Do they just learn to live with it or does it go away over time with age? It is. It depends on what kind of a headache a kid is having. So the first and foremost thing we do is have a thorough evaluation. And when I say a thorough evaluation, most of what we get is from a good neurological history, which is spending a lot of time with the families trying to figuring out what is causing the headaches, what are the type of headaches a patient is having? Are there some red flags? What we say are things which prompt us to a evaluation like getting an MRI or sending them to an emergency room. But overall, the most important thing to start with is getting a good history of 
what is happening behind the scenes or leading to these headaches because once we have a good understanding of that we're able to deal with the headaches better just not in terms of treatment but also in terms of lifestyle modifications uh, because lifestyle modifications are now known to be equally effective if not more important than medicines and treatment of pediatric headaches. I like to talk about identifying the triggers for these headaches. Is it stress that's leading to the headaches? Kids these days have very, very, very busy lifestyle, juggling between schoolwork, extracurricular activities, keeping up with sport practices, lack of sleep, lack of hydration, other stress, uh, you know, the sense of overwhelming, bullying, unfortunately, something which is very commonly associated with headaches. And then we see a rising uh, population of kids who now fall into the category of obese or obesity mm -hmm. presenting with headaches. So we try to figure out what is contributing to these headaches on the lines of these lifestyle factors. And then uh, once we've identified a potential cause or trigger, we try to work on modifying that trigger in terms of lifestyle changes. Dr. Call, earlier you mentioned children who have seizures um, often come to see you. Can you tell us a little bit about them? So uh, seizure is a single episode of uh, what we call as abnormal electrical brain activity. And I like to explain my patients about how a seizure is uh, by comparing it uh, to a cardiac problem. So sometimes, you know, patients say that they feel their heart is beating hard or fast. And it's representing a sometimes, if not always, abnormal electrical activity of the heart. Similarly, if you compare seizures, seizures is a sudden surge of abnormal electrical activity in the brain. Now, the difference between a seizure and an epilepsy is technically the recurrence. A single episode of this abnormal electrical activity gets classified as seizure and if you have recurrent episodes of unprovoked seizures you then classify it as epilepsy. What are the most common types of seizures that you see in children? So the most common type of seizures uh, we see in our clinical practice are uh, we see febrile seizures opson seizures and uh, other uh, epilepsy syndromes like benign Rolandic epilepsy or generalized uh, epilepsies. Can you tell us a little bit more about that febrile seizure? So febrile seizures actually are a very common type of seizure we see in the pediatric age group. They're seen uh, in children from most commonly six months to six years and associated with high fevers. That's why they're called febrile or febrile illness-related seizures. They actually are very common and seen in about 2 to 5% of the population. Having a febrile seizure by no means 
increases your risk of epilepsy or in other words the chances of you having epilepsy in the future just because you've had a febrile seizure is extremely low uh, and about only one to two percent of kids who have febrile seizure may develop epilepsy in the future. I bet as a parent that would be really really scary seeing your child have a seizure in front of you. I do remember when I was training uh, one thing uh, I learned never say it was only a one minute or a two minute seizure because one minute may be lifetime seeming to a family. Mm -hmm. So the most important thing when we talk about a febrile seizure is based on the history, whether this is a simple febrile seizure Mm -hmm. or a complex febrile seizure. A Mm -hmm. simple febrile seizure means that it involves the violent shaking of all four extremities Mm-hmm. It is lasting less than five minutes and it does not reoccur in a 24-hour period. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's associated with a fever. Now, mm-hmm. if your kid is in the age group of that six month to six year, mm-hmm. has a fever-related seizure with any of these characteristics, we classify it as a simple febrile seizure where the treatment is symptomatic care, meaning making sure that you're treating the fevers and from a seizure standpoint of view, simple safety precautions. What do simple safety precautions mean? That's often a common question asked, Mm -hmm. which means in case a seizure is happening, Mm -hmm. make sure that your kid is lying flat on the ground, Mm -hmm. head to the side. The reason why we ask for the head to be side is to make sure that the chances of somebody choking on their saliva are minimized, nothing in their mouth, and let the seizure pass. We ask for the seizure to be timed and if at any point the kid does not return to baseline, is appearing excessively lethargic, drowsy or sleepy, calling 911 or taking your kid to the ER is never a wrong answer. Do these children grow out of these febrile seizures or is it just something you have as a child or do you continue to have it the rest of your life? So most of the kids actually will outgrow these febrile type of seizures. So for example, if, uh, you know, uh, 100 kids have febrile seizures, only about one or two of them will have the risk of developing epilepsy in the future, which is actually almost equivalent to the general population. Somebody having a febrile seizure essentially doesn't uh, mean that they're going to develop epilepsy. Now, there might be some risk factors that are associated with your chances of developing epilepsy in the future if you presented with a febrile seizure. Now, those are with anybody having a family history of epilepsy. 
somebody presenting with developmental delay and febrile seizures or somebody with complicated febrile seizures. But even though that increases your risk, it doesn't significantly increase the overall risk of you developing epilepsy. It may reach up to about 5% as compared to 1% to 2% in the uh, patient of generalized uh, febrile seizures. Okay, doctor. So just a quick recap, a few learnings. If you have small children um, who have these free febrile seizures, um, is to have a safe place for them to lie down, which means no items in their crib or their play place. Um, time, time the different seizures, um, keep track of that, and then to monitor their temperature. Is that correct? That is correct. Uh, you know, watch for fevers, treat fevers uh, appropriately. I always, always like to tell families, kids gain weight pretty quick. So know the right dose of Tylenol or ibuprofen that needs to be administered for your kids. Uh, and at any point, if you are worried about these episodes, talk with your primary care provider, talk with your, uh, uh, and see if at this point you need to see a pediatric neurologist because sometimes having that second set of evaluation or somebody who's seen this uh, frequently uh, provides the families with that uh, almost reassurance that uh, they are being monitored for something, which uh, in my opinion is a very significant thing. Uh, so are there any learning problems or developmental problems that come with having these seizures when you're younger? I mean, after you grow out of them, are there any repercussions besides maybe getting epilepsy? So uh, not essentially uh, with a single febrile illness, mm -hmm. but we know now with uh, evidence and scientific data that recurrent seizures, mm -hmm. not particularly the febrile ones, recurrent untreated seizures uh, do increase your risk of having uh, intellectual problems, learning problems, and that is why it's very, very important uh, that we evaluate uh, epilepsies outside the scope of just febrile illnesses very accurately and treat them appropriately. Um, doctor, do you work with any autism um, families or diagnose a lot of autism families? I do. In fact, a significant amount of our patient population uh, we see in our clinic uh, are for diagnostic evaluation of autism spectrum disorder. And I'm very happy to share that uh, we are overall doing uh, very well with respect to the national average for time between uh, evaluation, referral, and diagnosis. To fill you in more on it, uh, overall, uh, there is about a waiting time of six to nine months nationally for patients to be evaluated for diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder because there is a huge need for evaluations and the amount of providers able to do this is not matching the need. However, here locally, we are able to do these evaluations in less than two weeks. 
so uh, we are doing uh, very well and our goal is to continue improving our time frame between uh, referrals to diagnosis. We are so lucky to have you in Mason City. That is a long time to wait, especially when children are at such an important part of their lives with social learnings and their education in school. That is just a long time. It is almost absolutely true and uh, in a sense a medical uh, emergency of a sort. Uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics recently in uh, December of uh, 2019 came out with a policy statement stating exactly the same that how we're struggling with uh, finding uh, providers who can do timely diagnosis for these kids and uh, timely diagnosis is important because eventually diagnosis leads to treatment and getting kids hooked up to the right resources in the community at their school level and uh, overall uh, referral for other comorbid diagnosis so as you rightly said waiting for six to nine months to get a diagnosis is just not delaying treatment, but also very distressing to a family who is uh, wanting to know uh, more about what's happening with their kids. Uh, I cannot imagine how it feels like a parent mm -hmm. to keep thinking about, does my kid have a diagnosis or what can I do more for my kid? Mm -hmm. And having that thought for six to nine months without being able to find the answer. And how do you evaluate these kids? So once a kid gets uh, referred to us, uh, we do have diagnostic testing that we do in the clinic. But even before that, the American Academy of Pediatric says that every kid during their routine well-child visit should get surveillance screening for developmental delay, particularly also autism spectrum disorder. Now, if any kid during these routine screening with their primary care provider uh, is failing to meet the goals of that particular developmental age group, uh, you do either do a follow-up screening or if they are failing in what we call is absolute red flag uh, areas, we refer them to a specialist for evaluation. I'd like to say the number one cause of speech and language delay in kids is hearing problems. So as the kids might be waiting for a evaluation, it's absolutely reasonable for them to get a hearing evaluation to rule out a hearing problem because the number one cause for speech delay is hearing problems. So once we have ruled that out, we then proceed with a diagnostic evaluation. There are various diagnostic tools that we uh, use in the clinical setting for autism diagnosis. The most uh, standard uh, or gold standard is called the ADOS testing. Uh, which is used more as a, of a research-based tool and in a clinic setting, uh, I do not utilize this testing. What we use in our clinic is called 
as a childhood autism rating scale and uh, is a valid uh, tool for evaluation. Once we screen the patients and depending on uh, what is observed and reported to us, we are able to make the diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder and classify them into severity level of maybe needing no support to leading substantial support. Once a diagnosis is established, we then go ahead and start follow-up uh, treatment and the key of follow-up treatment is making sure that they're getting plugged into resources as therapies and making also essentially important that the school is providing them academic uh, and behavioral accommodations to meet their needs. So can you kind of touch base on what, in your opinion, causes um autism and do you believe that vaccines have any part in that there is a uh, we don't <laughs> know a lot about autism as we try to understand more and more about autism we definitely know that there is a genetic component to autism and then there are environmental risk factors that are associated with autism and at times there is a mix of factors even despite knowing that environmental factors and genetics play a role in causing autism, uh, there is a lot about autism that we still do not understand. And to follow up on your question about uh, vaccines causing autism, I, I'm happy to say that we live in an era where now we have substantial studies and researched that is backed up with evidence which says that vaccines do not cause autism. So vaccines <laughs> do not cause autism. And then another question for you. Is autism and Asperger's um, connected? Are they the same thing? And can you kind of tell us a little bit about what Asperger's is? So uh, prior to the DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, uh, Five, uh, autism uh, was classified into autism. It was pervasive developmental disorders, mm -hmm. not uh, otherwise specified. And then they had Asperger's, which was called as high-functioning autism. Mm -hmm. When they revised the guidelines in 2011-2012, we kind of pulled it into an umbrella term where mm -hmm. all of these subset were now classified as autism spectrum disorder. So we don't, in current uh, world of clinical diagnosis, use the Asperger's syndrome uh, diagnosis. Every patient who meets the criteria gets classified as autism spectrum disorder. But quite often you will see people mentioning that yeah. somebody has Asperger's or high-functioning uh, autism. Now, what happens in these patients is that they're not what the classic non-verbal patients. Mm -hmm. These patients might be very high-functioning intellectually, but have a lot of social and communication problems on a day-to-day -day setting. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, the loosely used term high-functioning autism. 
Thank you for explaining that. I've heard the term and I've heard of autism, but never really knew what the difference was or if they were the same thing. Um, before we keep going, I want to go back to something that we talked about earlier. When you said there was a six and nine month wait time in most cases to see um, a child neurologist for autism, why is that? Is there an increased amount of people with autism or are autism rates staying the same and the number of child neurologists decreasing? It is overall what I would uh, call is a high need, uh, high demand specialty. There are not a lot of child neurology programs overall in the country. So if you see the need and the supply, there certainly is a mismatch. Furthermore, uh, there are not a lot of child neurologists who are inclined to be serving in what I call is geographically limited areas uh, because it's a specialized uh, branch of medicine and at times, uh, you know, uh, practicing child neurology in a resource limited uh, location might be challenging. So I think a combination of those two plus the willingness of uh, child neurologist uh, to be evaluating these patients. Not every child neurologist sees and diagnoses patients with autism spectrum disorder. Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Call, what are some of the biggest problems these families and patients face that have autism? In my opinion, uh, one, lack of community resources particularly if you might be in an area uh, that does not have a lot of service providers like physical therapists, occupational therapists, and speech therapists might be a limitation for the kids to have the resources. And uh, there is a high amount of what I call is parent burnout, sibling burnout, uh, inclusion into the communities, elements of bullying and social isolation, to name a few issues that uh, families often run into. So uh, I urge everybody to look around, know in your communities, at your church, if there is somebody who possibly has a diagnosis of autism spectrum disorder or any other complex health need only if not neurological, and see if there is any help or resource that you're able to provide the families. And sometimes all the families need is maybe a second person with them when they go to a grocery store or somebody to watch their kid while they attend a church service. So I feel that each one of us is capable of helping out in our individual ways. And the only way to know is look around and ask. Oh, thank you. And we're about ready to wrap it up here soon. But before we do, um, can you just share some fun facts about neurology? Oh, this is one of the most favorite things I like to talk about <laughs> uh, neurology. Though brain is such a complex organ and uh, does so much of uh, activity, it's actually made up of 78% of water. Who would imagine that? Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> All right. And then uh, there are about 100 million neurons in our brain. And at any point of the day, 
there are about 70,000 thoughts that go through your brain. Wow. Uh, average human brain weighs about three pounds. Okay. So compared to your body, it's not a significant weight, but then it's doing a lot of work mm -hmm. for your brain and controlling a lot of important functions of your body. And finally, doctor, can you tell us what your favorite part of your job is working with children every day? First of all, I really, really love the kind of support uh, I receive from the families I've seen so far. Parents and families and also the patients are very, very uh, kind to us and have given us so much of love and support that we've uh, continued to grow in the past uh, six months I've been here. I think what I really feel most rewarding about the field of child neurology and particularly my job is that you're able to invest in the future of the country and overall the world. Uh, every kid I talk with, I generally chat with them and get to know more about them, their future plans, what they like to do, and uh, in a way contribute to their overall health and making sure that they make uh, healthy lifestyle choices and are able to function to their maximum capacity uh, in a day-to-day -day setting. So that's the most fun thing I like about my job, talking with the families, getting to know them, and then helping them uh, reach uh, the goal they have for their kids uh, and then you know, helping them contribute to a healthy overall lifestyle. That's great to hear. It sounds like you really love your job. And thank you so much, Dr. Call, for being here with us today and taking the time to talk to us. Um, from autism to epilepsy, um, all the different problems that are faced with the family and the patient. We really covered a lot today, and I know that I learned a lot. Um, so thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And as, as I said that, at any point if a family is concerned about any neurological uh, condition in their kids, talking with their primary care providers is a very reasonable approach. And if you think uh, you've not met uh, reasonable answers, trying to uh, schedule an evaluation with a pediatric neurologist may not be an unreasonable option to explore. Thank you again for having me. Thanks for all that great information. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned and send us your feedback. And, and as always, guys, you can send us your uh, feedback to our email, actually. We, don't, we haven't talked about that one in a long time. So podcast at mercyhealth.com or you can send it to www.mercyone.org slash podcast. And as always, live your best life.